welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us today is Damian Kavanaugh. Damian is the president of MISBO. Thank you so much for coming on with us this morning, Damian. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. For our listeners, would you mind telling us just what the mission of MISBO is uh, and how you got involved with it personally? MISBO is an association of about 350 schools spread out primarily throughout the southeastern U.S. Um, we're all independent schools driven by, uh, driven by our own unique missions. And what MISBO does is helps the operations professionals in schools, the business officers, the HR professionals, the heads of school, to really operate the school at, a, at as high an organizational efficiency level as, uh, as possible. We're particularly known for our uh, very robust purchasing consortium, um, which is the only one of its kind in the, in the world that focuses exclusively on the needs of independent schools. That's tremendous. How did you come to be involved with MISBO? My own background is in education. I uh, went to an independent school and then um, after college and grad school wound up uh, teaching, uh, coaching, and being an administrator and then a head of school um, at a couple of different schools in, uh, in the South um, and fell into and got recruited into association work a little over a decade ago. I spent about eight years as the chief accreditation officer for um, a related organization called SAIS, the Southern Association of Independent Schools, and then uh, was asked to uh, lead MISBO um, about four years ago. Um, and the funny thing, little irony, is that MISBO was founded on the on the campus of the school that I um, that I worked at and cut my teeth at. Uh, MISBO was founded about 45 years ago, so uh, I was not working there at the time. I'm not quite that uh, ancient and decrepit quite yet. <laughs> What is your thought on, you know, obviously the, 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 the 300 pound gorilla in the room has been the impact of the coronavirus on schools. Um, you know, the contrarian view might be that, uh, you know, that, that this has no impact on schools. As soon as we get the vaccine, we go back to the way things were. What's your take on, on where schools are? Do you think schools are going to have to change? Are you seeing some schools closing because of uh, the coronavirus. What's what's the state of the union of independent schools in the Southeast vis-a-vis -vis coronavirus? We're in the middle of two pretty interesting research projects. One that um, that we're doing in conjunction with a couple of uh, economics professors um, from Kennesaw State University. And in that um, study, what we've what we found, and we um, hope to publish pretty soon, what we found is that the impact of COVID on um, private school enrollment is not nearly as great as the impact of public school status on whether they were open face-to-face, -face, hybrid, um, or in virtual. Um, and the data is pretty clear on this. And what excites the economists so much is that this uh, market behavior in private schools actually looks to be contrary to how the market behaved in, um, in uh, areas of great disruption like the recession um, um, a little over a decade ago. Um, so that's what had compelled them to, um, to and the, the urgency behind getting this information out. Uh, we were able to publish a, a, a blog post in The Hill um, a few weeks ago um, that I, I think you probably saw um, that was that uh, just hinted at this uh, at this set of data. The other data collection that we're that we're involved with right now that MISBO is doing in conjunction with our colleagues in the Mid-Atlantic and eventually in California as well, the other business officers associations 
um, is relative to this idea of, um, of economic uh, perceptions by both the head of school and the CFO, comparing them to each other, looking at their, their perception of in their state, do they suspect, how many schools do they suspect will either close or merge with each other, um, different opportunities that they might have to collaborate with other independent schools or associations to outsource uh, or collaborate in different uh, services that they offer, most of which are, are, are human-related services. And um, final questions about what are the barriers to moving down that road. So um, lots, of, lots of interesting things that are, um, that are in, in, um, uh, in the works right now. But to your point, Adam, about the, the impact of COVID, um, it, is, it is obviously dramatic. And you know as well as anybody that in uh, March when it first hit, when schools immediately had to, um, had to pivot the word of 2020 to, to become all virtual, schools did it with varying degrees of success. And the, the, uh, an important corollary to that is the, in the admissions market, we knew that our re-enrollment softened almost immediately and people were um, trying to work out of their contracts, um, trying, to, trying to delay answering schools. But then we saw, generally speaking, we saw a nice uptick in enrollments throughout the, um, throughout the, the, the normal summer melt period. We actually saw an uptick instead. And that's what I think has been very confusing to people because in our normal models, our predictive models on enrollment, um, they don't actually work right now. Um, and so we've got, we've got some real issues in trying to predict what will the future hold? What does, what does this new re-enrollment season hold for the next academic school year? Um, what will be our melt? Will we have a melt or will we have an increase instead? Um, and those are some of the, the big, as you mentioned, the, the big gorilla in the room um, just for the sustainability of schools. But in an, in an ed tech um, landscape and what that means, um, we've got um, interesting opportunities and our tech professionals have been remarkably hard at work, not just getting up to speed um, on how to deliver uh, an in-person product um, in, a, in, a, in a virtual or a hybrid environment, uh, but also how to teach teachers how to do this. Yeah. Um, as you know, it's not just the students who didn't know how to do it, but it's the teachers who didn't know how to do it. And then by extension, having to spend a good deal of time with the parents of those students who are at home sitting with them watching uh, over their shoulder. And I suspect that the most successful schools have been the ones that understood um, those different levels and dynamics of people who they now had to educate. They obviously have to educate the students, but they have to educate the teachers and they must educate the parents as well. D Damien, will you be able to work as a teacher in the United States of America in five years if you're not able to teach online? I, I think that's a great question, Adam, and I suspect that there are plenty of schools that you can do that in, um, but they're probably not growing schools. Um, wow. But it's an interesting... Wow. It's growing interesting. Not growing that schools. may be the quote of the day. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good question, and the, and the skill set that we need for tomorrow is not the skill set that we learned with, and this is um, always an, an ongoing professional development issue that we, that we always need to realize. Um, and even even without COVID, the um, the advent of great brain science that's really taught us more about what it, what the learner profile actually is 
um, and how to meet the needs of learners in, uh, in classrooms and engage them and truly and authentically engage them. Um, there are great things that we've learned over the last 20, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years um, that have really upended education and made it, um, I think, much less of a factory model and much more of a unique learner uh, model that's very focused uh, on the needs of the individual student, which has always been um, one of the hallmarks of private education and independent school education, where we've got some very basic promises that every independent school has. We know your child and we love your child. Um, and while I know for a fact every public school teacher I know absolutely adores what they do and loves the, loves the children um, they, th that they work with and loves the loves their colleagues. Um, there, there is a, there is a, um, there are barriers in uh, government education and public education um, that are very difficult to uh, to overcome. Uh, and private schools can lead the way in some of these things. And my hope is that education uh, as a whole, as a sector, continues to get um, to get lifted and elevated as a profession. And Damien, I want to circle back to a point you made a little while ago and, and ask for some follow-up on enrollment trends. Um, did I hear correctly you saying that in places where public schools were not open for in-person learning, that there is a greater demand for independent schools and, and vice versa, where public schools are open, there's maybe a little bit of a melt? Or did I misunderstand that point? You didn't misunderstand it, but um, but I, but I would love to lecture on the way that statistics actually work and the danger of statistics and what. By all means, go for uh, it. Yeah, I love Mark, it. Mark Twain said lie, Mark Twain or someone said lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's right. Um, so what the data what the data shows that we have in the in the uh, the data set is that there is a high correlation. Um, I mean, a very high statistically valid correlation between um, the status of um, of the the countywide public schools uh, and a and an open or hybrid status or, or an option to be open status um, of private schools in those same areas. Um, and this is what the data is suggesting. Uh, and as we continue to work through it and um, and um, and delight in running all kinds of multiple regression analysis uh, on the information that we have, um, we're looking forward to um, to being able to publish um, something in the hopefully in the near future. That's fascinating, Damien. I want to kind of go in a different direction, if that's all right. I uh, have been thinking a lot about the last interview that Adam and I did with a gentleman who um, has begun an, a completely online independent school. And the point that he made to Adam and I was, listen, you know, the further we go into the future, the higher facilities costs are going to be. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just cut out my overhead and keep my prices reasonable by having my school completely online. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I know you've thought deeply about uh, you know, where facilities and where other expenses fit into the independent school model. Um, what do you see as being the future of that? Has this gentleman happened upon the right solution with going completely online or are there other alternatives for independent schools in the market? For a little context, we're talking about Josh Dunn uh, at Astronova School, right. who, who of course founded a school with Elon Musk and has some brand equity that he might trade in that online space. But for the average Joe, what do you think? I think there's a wonderful opportunity to remind ourselves about what makes the industry that we work in so um, so unique, and it is this word independent. Um, and I can just hear the the people who taught me about what school really really means banging their fist on the table, independent, independent, independent. Um, and this is this is what is the 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 most 
um, the, 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 but the, the irony is that it is the, it is the common factor that we all share, but it is the, the common factor that we share is that we all insist on being different from each other. So my point is what would work for some will not work for others. And that's part of the beauty of it is that we do have um, myriad different opportunities for students to learn in the environment that works best for them. I, I suspect that um, that the the uh, person who was on um, previously has hit on a model that will work for some, but it begs the question: um, if it's uh, what is there now that has driven um, that has made this more likely to be a successful model than in the past? Um, and there are, there are um, online schools that exist um, and have for quite some time now um, that are um, that are successful within their context. Um, what I what I really enjoy um, hearing right now and sort of find um, I'm not sure if comical is the right word, but um, at least slightly amusing is the number of schools that have said, "Hey, uh, private schools have said, hey, we're pretty good at this online thing. Maybe we should outsource this. Maybe we should um, develop something that is an alternative revenue stream and sell, you know, as as a way to to build revenue what it is that we're doing because we're good at that." And I always caution them, uh, and I say, you know, if you're looking for a silver bullet to um, to 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 meet that your financial needs that you might have. This might not be it. Um, no, uh, no more is it um, a financial uh, silver bullet to uh, open up or exp extend to um, early learning or to have some summer camps than anything else. The core of what you're doing and your mission and why you're doing it is still um, ascendant in what drives education and what drives people to you in the way that you do it. Now, there's no question that um, facilities costs are um, and, and will continue to um, stay uh, at a really high level. Uh, but the point, I think, of the most successful schools is that this, this arms race of facilities uh, or arms race of technology that we're in um, really only is sustainable if the, the core of who they are, of who the school is, and what they're trying to accomplish is, um, is recognizable and is something that is desired in the marketplace. Amen. That makes a lot of sense. Just to jump on the supply side of the conversation a little bit, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we've seen uh, articles and, and, and thought leaders uh, caution us that there will be a uh, a number of folks leaving the education profession after this. Uh, I think almost 27% of, of teachers are thinking about right. leaving. Are we seeing similar trends in the independent school space? Do you think there is an opportunity for independent schools that doesn't exist in the, in the public uh, or government school sector? Um, do you think that there's a pendulum swing in one way or the other? What are your thoughts about trying to get good people to stay in the education business? We'll see a shrink, just like any, um, just like um, public schools and private schools. We'll see a shrink. I, I'm sure of it, um, as people decide. Well, I think people have already decided to take some early retirement. So a lot of that happened over last summer. Um, and the, you know, the the sort of the flip side of that is the um, teacher placement firms and consultants who work in that area um, got very busy very quickly. Um, towards, um, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of trying to, um, trying to help schools um, find those, those really great, really unique uh, employee, employer, employees um, who, could, um, who could do the job. Um, I, I suspect that the, 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 the issue that will always drive 
whether people want to go into education or not is actually the the professionalization of the um, of the job itself. Um, and I, I suspect that as we continue to um, preach and talk about um, private schools, independent schools, having autonomy to choose their own faculty, to select their own curriculum, to select their own students. These are the, the sort of the, the, the enduring truths of what, um, what it means to be in an independent school. That will always be compelling to people who absolutely believe in education uh, and want to contribute to the future of the fabric of our society. Um, I, I do think, um, and I work with a lot of public school uh, teachers um, and public school administrators, one of the greatest disservices that we do is devaluing what they, um, what they do as professions. Um, and, and I suspect that if we create an environment in our schools where people understand um, that they are professionals and that they are treated that way and they show up that way um, and that the others around them, the parents, the, the faculty, the administrators, the board, the community um, treats them with the level of respect that they absolutely deserve as, as professionals, um, then we might see more people sticking with it um, for a longer term. You know, there's plenty of research out there um, about um, about programs uh, like, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw out Teach for America as an example um, that has um, you know, students who stay, I know, right? There you go. Who has um, folks who wind up staying in the, in the profession for a couple of years afterwards and then leaving to go on to do something else. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty, pretty bold statistic. But does it suggest that it's that it's necessary from sort of a neoliberal type of a um, type of a program, or does it suggest that it is deprofessionalizing um, what the the work of teacher colleges are doing? Um, I don't have an answer to that, but I know that these are these are solutions to um, to problems, and we and we probably need to look for um, look for broad solutions, um, uh, multivariate solutions to. Um, to to problems that are that are absolutely that way, and they're not linear. As you look out over the landscape over the next couple of years, what are the most important trends in ed tech that independent schools need to be paying attention to? That maybe they aren't right now, but they should be. I think there's some really neat things that we are um, able to do in ed tech that we just weren't able to do before. Um, your school, Adam, is one of the great examples of that um, with uh, incorporating some virtual reality into what you're doing. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of depart momentarily. Um, we just ran our, our, um, our, our annual conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and as, you know, as most uh, association conferences have had to do, we had to switch and make it uh, virtual instead of um, in person. But our drive in doing it was to, um, was to make that virtual experience as engaging and as, um, and as proactive as possible. So we spent a lot of time with the speakers and, and taught them how to use the platform and how to, how to use it to engage. And we spent time with them on how the adult learner actually learns. You, you can't just sit there and lecture for two hours you really have to have um, have some variety. So we gave them a 737 mindset. We said, if you want to talk for seven minutes, then have some activity for three minutes, then uh, rinse and repeat. Um, and it was fine. That was enough of a platform for them to jump off of. Um, the, the specific platform, the technology that we used is this uh, great company out of um, Athens, Georgia, um, uh, called Map Dynamics that uh, developed this product called Event Home Base. And about a month ago, they were um, acquired by a very large uh, company that specializes in um, AR and VR. 
And so I picked up the phone almost immediately and called the, um, the founder of the company that we work with and said, look, we've got, we've got uh, more events coming up in January and June. What are the possibilities that um, augmented or virtual reality are going to be part of this platform that we can incorporate? And he said, well, you know, we can't quite do it by January, but give us till June and we'll see what happens. So I'm really excited in the, you know, so in the ed tech space, this would be for adult learners. Can we incorporate some AR, VR into our conference structure? And of course, I mean, the trickle down, trickle up, however you want to look at it, is what does that imply for what goes on in a classroom? I could easily see the hardware, which hopefully we can evangelize. If we can get folks the headsets, the software is there already. You know? These are these are definitely some barriers that um, I mean that is a that is a physical barrier that um, that you all were able to to overcome at least in a in a limited way for some of your students um, with you, you moved mountains to do that though so let's not let's not kid ourselves and hopefully those mountains are much right. lower and um, and it it will become more accessible I do think that has a future in the way that we teach in the way that students learn um, in the way that that um, in the way that the the education process actually moves forward. But I think there's a lot more technology in schools than we realize. Um, artificial intelligence is all over the place and machine learning is all over the place in our schools right now. Um, from using it to do some predictive analytics in your, in your admissions, as we already talked about a little bit, um, to uh, making your website a lot smarter than it is to, to be responsive to users. Um, you know, we're already doing, and I hope people realize this, but um, there, there are already cookies all over um, uh, school websites that are tracking people and, and trying to understand not just the, the sort of the high level Google analytics that you can get that says where are they going, um, but also truly understanding that the, the website is now really the front door um, as, as it used to be the admissions tours. By the time they come for an admissions tour, they're already pretty close to making their decision. Uh, but this is, this is another thing that, that there's tons of um, uh, ed tech um, and technology and education right now in doing things like virtual tours, but also in staff meetings um, and in, um, and in, um, in department meetings, in um, things that you can use. Let's just throw it into athletics. You know, you, you, you know that you're going to be on the field for a little bit, but if you're not on the field, when you're not on the field, what can you do from a technological standpoint to get kids um, to move in a certain way. If, it's, if you're coaching basketball, coaching soccer, coaching lacrosse, coaching uh, swimming, whatever it might be, where you can leverage some technology um, to, uh, to really move down that road. I think the biggest thing that we always need to look out for as we move down whatever uh, path it is, is um, the concepts of access and, and equity in schools. Wow. Um, and not just for, for our public school colleagues, but certainly for our independent schools uh, as well. Um, the idea of having access to good technology um, and having um, uh, equitable um, uh, access is, is really key. So the, the f we tend to talk about the families who, whatever they don't have at home, um, they don't have you know, good, good internet, they don't have good hardware, they don't have this, that, the other. Uh, but even when you do have those things in that platform, um, is there equitable access in just being able to use it? Uh, and having the knowledge base in order to use it. And those are more of the issues that sort of the traditional independent school um, struggles with, whereas our public school colleagues really do struggle quite a bit um, with, um, uh, you know, with poverty and with, um, and with um, just not having devices. 
Uh, that's, 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 it's definitely different and, and plays itself out differently. So again, this is another area where I think that we can be leaders um, and provide demonstrations about what it should look like so that we can pass that uh, around to other schools, not just in our independent school networks, but also to our public school colleagues, whether local, uh, regional, or national. Damien, you know, we're, we're in another, in, uh, you know, some people call it a fourth industrial revolution. And you referenced something earlier that piqued my interest. You were talking about this kind of neoliberal framework or this, you know, and, and I think back to Harkness and some of the older progressives that shaped the last 70 years in education, this idea around um, education being pragmatic and being useful. And I see similar tensions now between um, educating kids for the jobs of the future and teaching people how to learn uh, for the love of learning and for life of the mind. Where do you think independent schools fall in this tension? Do you think that the most successful independent schools will triple down on things like classical education and life of the mind or do you th things that are timeless? Or do you think that the more successful independent schools should be more progressive and be thinking in terms of pragmatism and let's get this coding, let's get this VR, let's get this, you know, where do you think the balance is and, and where do you think the tensions are there? Great question. I think it's got an easy answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Do it all. Yeah. You better no, be I think, walking chew gum. Is that what you're telling me? I, I think that's probably that's probably part of it. And as you say, that's right. That's right. Do it all is something that um, that is a a common curse in independent schools. We add programs all the time, and rarely do we um, remove programs uh, or delete programs. But I, I suspect that what most schools will do is what what whatever it is that the new technology is, they will continue to teach to it in a way that is uh, reflective of their mission, reflective of their core values, reflective of the outcomes that are imperatives in their mission. So if leadership, being a good citizen, which are fairly common phrases in um, most, most mission statements, if those, are, if those are part of the outcomes that you desire, you'll figure out how to continue to do that in whatever the uh, modality might be. Um, so I think to, you know, I think, um, to um, uh, global ed as something that um, really came into the into the forefront, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago or so, uh, and all and um, we started to see um, phrases that were incorporated into um, into uh, mission statements about global ed or strategic initiatives that we could see um, towards having a global ed uh, director and and moving down that road. And the question is, well, why was that important then? And 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 I think the answer is um, it was important then it was always important but what it taught is how to be um, empathetic with the rest of the the world and how to embrace um, uh, how to embrace the other among us which is a leadership trait that uh, we've always I think that's a leadership trait that we've always believed in um, that mm -hmm. if you if you want to lead others, you really need to know who you are, where you come from, and where they come from as well. So I think right now, the um, one of the one of the large trends that we all know um, is uh, a movement towards uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, work in schools and what that looks like. Um, so we've seen a lot of diversity directors in schools, and and I wonder, you know, you can't put that on the back of one person any more than you could global education on the back of one person. 
it is a school imperative and a school initiative, but the way that it manifests itself may be through the lens of one or two or three or four people. Um, but it is something that we've always believed in. We just haven't had the language for it. So I think as we move forward and incorporate more tech skills uh, into the future of what we do, it is a new vocabulary and a, and a, uh, and a shifting vocabulary that still has at its core, as you, as you called it, a classical uh, education. Will there be a place, Damien, um, for things like awarding students micro-credentials as they graduate from high school? Um, I asked this because just yesterday I was reading up on LinkedIn about some schools in the Atlanta area where you are um, who are looking to give students the opportunity to earn micro-credentials and in artificial intelligence by the time they graduate high school. Um, do you think there's a place for that, especially as we see you know, the, the cost of college rise and perhaps more students begin to think about uh, alternatives to college for advancing their careers? I, I think that this is the answer that I gave before about independent, independent, independent is probably still true. Um, and the, the, I think at the heart of the question is, what is the, what is the goal of an education? Is the goal of an, a, a K-12 education to get into college? Or is the goal of a K-12 education to be prepared for life, whatever that might hold? Um, and still to this day, private school, uh, independent school uh, graduation rates are 100%, and matriculation to college is 99.9%. Percent, um, whereas public school numbers are depending on where you look, and I can't. I'm, I'm, I know that I'm going to get this wrong, so some one of your one of your fans will will correct me on this at some point. Um, but the graduation rates are in the neighborhood of 60, 70, 80 percent or so um, across the U.S. But college matriculation rates from public school um, are significantly lower uh, than they are from from um, from private school. So it it sort of says that while about 10 percent of the U.S. Um, K-12 population is enrolled in a private school and therefore 90% in a public school, that's probably not the same ratio in higher ed. Um, matter of fact, it can't possibly be the same ratio in higher ed, but I don't know that that's a number that we have a, a good handle on. So to your point, what is what are the goals and the outcomes of the K-12? Is it um, bachelor's, a, a, a high school diploma that will then um, help in the college uh, and then in later life? Is it um, credentials or badges that say, yes, I have this skill set? Um, or is it, in my opinion, probably more along the lines of a, a way to think that will set you up for future success in ways that are that will um, help you in your uh, in your future? Those are those are the outcomes that we are most accustomed to. Those are the outcomes that continue to work for our students and for our future and for the leaders of the next generation. And I do hope that those continue. Excellent. So, you know, you, you, it's interesting, you know, raising the issue around college prep uh, kind of triggered for me, uh, you know, you, you're hearing some of the great entrepreneurs of our time. Uh, you know, Elon Musk and, and Peter Thiel and, and, uh, and people like Zuckerberg and, and others, you know, questioning the value proposition of college. And I wonder your thoughts on if college and particularly college tuitions may be a bubble, how does that impact, how should schools, K-12 schools, be thinking about um, the identity around college prep 
as a piggyback off of this idea that you're talking about, you know, what is, what is the goal? Is it preparing us for life? Is there a, a GoPro option instead of college? Where do you think, you know, what, what are the very best minds in independent schools thinking about this issue of whether or not college preparatory will be at the true north of the school's mission going forward? I, I think that there's a, there's a difference that we need to draw and a distinction we need to draw about um, the, you know, the various entrepreneurs that, you've, uh, that you referenced and they're, they're thinking about what's the value of this particular um, brand and this particular flavor, flavor of education. When we go down that, when we go down that road, the, I, I suspect that what, they're, what they tend to be talking about are what, are what economists call private returns to education. Private returns are, it's essentially what you'd think of as the ROI. I um, spend X amount of time and X amount of money um, going to higher ed. What will I get out of that um, as, a, as a return on that? I think that this is a, a little bit of a specious argument because education as a whole lifts society. So there's another um, strain here that talks about the social returns of education. You've got private returns um, and social returns. And the social returns are measured, in, um, are measured differently. So is the economy robust and strong? And is there a correlation to um, a, um, a, a, a higher level of education? The answer is yes. Um, I mean, another simple thing in, in lots of developed nations, um, a more highly educated population leads to um, lower, um, uh, lower teen pregnancies leads to lower, um, lower incarceration rates, um, leads to less drug use, leads to safer societies, leads to greater spending and appreciation of art, leads to, generally speaking, people would say, happier and more fulfilled lives. And if that's the real goal of education, if that's the real goal of living, I'd prefer to go down that road any day of the week. Um, but I do suspect that the, the measurable is what we normally look at. Um, and Albert Costa has this great phrase that says, um, we measure, uh, you know, we, we, we get so focused on the measurement itself that we forget uh, that there is meaning in what we are trying to measure. And we tend to measure the wrong things. Um, so I do, I do, I am fixated a little bit on the private returns and the social returns to education. Um, it's a whole lot easier to measure when you are in developing nations whose highest level of education is, you know, eighth grade or, you know, some sort of a very basic level of education. It gets significantly harder to measure when you get into higher ed and advanced degrees. But I will say this, um, as I already mentioned, the statistic that about 100%, you know, 100% of kids graduate from private schools um, and 99.9 go on to uh, higher ed on boards of trustees of independent schools, um, at least throughout the Southeast, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90, 90 plus percent, um, 80 to 90% of those um, uh, people on boards have advanced degrees themselves. Um, and the rates of college uh, graduation among private school graduates is something along the order of 80 to 90% of independent school graduates will graduates will graduate from college within four to five years. Um, so the normal measure is, can you graduate um, from college within five or six years? That's the normal public measure that you'll see from, uh, from higher ed. And they're, they're happy with their numbers that it's 60% or 50% or 70%, whatever it is, whereas private school graduates are actually accomplishing this. And there's something to be said about 
um, going through a process and accomplishing it. You know, you, you, if, if you did a master's degree anywhere at some point, someone along the lines probably said the goal of a master's degree is actually to finish it. Um, it's uh, and that's that's an important thing to to note. The um, the a lot of this work, if if you're really interested in it, comes from the um, the OECD um, and their work on global education projects um, and the the social and private returns um, that they've uh, that they've tried to analyze. But it is phenomenally complex um, and private school. Um, uh, returns to education are things that are not very well studied. There's some great studies out of Mexico, if you're interested, um, that I read, and I'm happy to, to pass along. Um, but it's but it's something that's fabulously difficult to to measure. Important. To your point, and to come back around to it, um, is this idea of micro credentialing as an alternative to higher ed. I certainly don't mind it in the least, but I do wonder if it's fixated on something. Um, that's not necessarily what we want as an entire society. It's fixated on the individual as opposed as opposed to fixated uh, fixated on the on the collective and fixated on utility as opposed to fixated on potential. That's there you it. go. Absolutely. So we are at the point in the episode where we do our Furious Five. So Damien, the Furious Five is just going to be simply five questions that we ask that don't necessarily have anything to do with what we've talked about today. They're more just fun get to know you questions. We encourage rapid fire answers. So just one or two sentences. We might choose to riff off of one of them. We might not, but uh -oh. <laughs> he's shaking his head, folks. All right, so Damien, first question of the Furious Five. What's the best movie or TV show that you've watched recently? Um, it's the best movie or TV show that I'm about to watch. It is, it is Christmas time. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna watch it. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. You talking about Bruce Willis? Bruce Willis. Yes, Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Oh, there wow. you go. But I say it. Go, go look it up on uh, on Facebook or social media somewhere. Just throw that out I there and see how many people agree or disagree with you. Second question of the Furious Five: What's the best meal that you've eaten recently? Um. A delightful paella that I made. Nice. Paella. Very nice. I'm going to borrow that one too. Mm. If you were on a desert island and you could only bring one book with you to read for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Um, it, it would be, um, believe it or not, it would be Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Um, which is a which is a lovely book. The movie was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the movie didn't turn out as, as well as it should have. Um, but I find within Ender's Game a um, this really great study of of human nature um, and and education and upbringing and a and a methodology to it that is so remarkably flawed um, and ends justify the means driven um, that it that it creates this opportunity for conversation and dialogue um, that is just very deep uh, rewarding um, and and very enriched. Fantastic answer. Uh, I love that book. At some point, we'll have to have a panel about uh, classic sci-fi and you'll be invited back to the podcast. We'll talk Orson Scott Card. We'll talk Phil K. Dick. We'll talk all those guys. Hey, um, P.K. Dick, I'm telling you, do androids dream of electric sheep? Great book, life -changing uh, great book. story, and a life-changing. Absolutely. Life-changing book, for sure, for sure. Um, fourth question of the Furious Five. Uh, who is a thought leader that 
you think our listeners should stop what they're doing and either go follow on social media, go buy their book, go watch their TED Talk, something along those lines? That's a great question. And I will tell you that the, the book that uh, continues, I keep coming back to time and time again, is this book called Robot Proof. It's Higher Ed in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Joseph Aon. Um, and I would highly recommend that, uh, that your folks um, read this book and jump on and start to follow this person. AI is something that is simply here to stay as a disruptor um, and understanding it from, as we know, so go, as higher ed goes, so goes K-12 independent education. Um, so this is something that I highly recommend that people get on and, and, uh, and really investigate and start to follow this guy. That's tremendous. What's the title and the offer one more time? Robot Proof. Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Joseph Aon, A-O-U-N. Wow. So our last question of the Furious Five is something that we like to call the contrarian question. It's really Adam's question, so I'm going to let him ask it. So you, it's a perfect segue because this is where I was going. Um, you know, from the perspective of K-12 associations, particularly for independent schools, what is it that you know about artificial intelligence and its impact on the education business that maybe some of your colleagues at uh, NAAS or SAAS or some of the other associations would disagree with you on? I, I suspect that we disagree quite a bit on the nature of how it should be used and why it should be used. I believe in the, I believe as, as I believe they do as well, strongly in human interaction, um, that that is the, that that is actually the primary driver, that there are things that you don't replace and can't replace. Um, in a lot of my workshops, I show those scenes from the, the Star Trek movie where Spock is down in this pit of learning despair. Um, so if you know it, you know it. There's this, there's this great um, sequence where he's in this pit learning and this knowledge is thrown at him and these test questions are thrown at him. And then he climbs out of this, uh, this, this bubble and he is, he's met by three um, fellow Vulcan students who are all adolescents. Um, and they elicit an emotional response from him and he starts to beat the living snot out of this kid. And the next scene is the most critical scene there is because it's an adult learner, an adult teacher uh, who happens to be his father, sitting with him, discussing what it was that happened, why it happened, and really giving context and meaning to it. So my point is, artificial intelligence and artificial learning as a as a way to help us with education is exactly that and it ends at the water's edge where giving context giving meaning giving understanding to it is something that can only happen in the human interaction of the you know what dewey would call the garden um, and that type of building meaning together and um, um, paulo friere in the pedagogy of the oppressed would call the co-creation of meaning is the is the end goal of education. Wow, tremendous! I didn't know we would get uh, free air in that <laughs> contrarian question. We got a little left and right. Keep people there guessing. That's it. Get the pop. <laughs> go left, head fake left. I'll tell you this. I like it. Way to end the podcast. Excellent. So next time on the agenda, we've got Phil K. Dick. We've got. Pedagogy of the Oppressed, so much more to talk about, but for right now, Damien, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for being on with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing your perspective. Thank you very much. I loved it. You rocked Absolutely. it. Take care, Damien.